stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Whenever I ask guests on the show who their influences are or what writers they are particularly excited about, there has been no name more often mentioned than that of today's guest, Kelly Link. From Karen Russell to China Mieville, she, she has become a touchstone for many, prompting Neil Gaiman to declare her a national treasure and for Michael Shaban to describe her as the most darkly playful voice in American fiction. Her stories have won the O. Henry Prize, garnered Hugo and Nebula Awards, and appeared in Best American Short Stories. Her collection, Stranger Things Happen, was a Salon Book of the Year and a Village Voice favorite. Her book, Magic for Beginners, won the Locus Award for Best Short Story Collection, and her collection, Pretty Monsters, was a finalist for both the World Fantasy Award and the Locus Award. Kelly Link is also co-founder of and editor at Small Beer Press, and its zine, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, which between them have published work by the likes of Ursula Le Guin, Karen Joy Fowler, Maureen McHugh, Ben Parzibach, and Lydia Millet. Kelly Link is here today to talk about her much-anticipated, 10 years in the making, new book of stories, Get in Trouble, a collection the Boston Globe calls ridiculously brilliant, and publishes weekly ads that links characters driven by yearning and obsession, not only get in trouble, but seek trouble out to spectacular effect. Welcome to Between the Covers, Kelly Link. Hi, my pleasure to be here. Let me just start out with the title. I love the title, Get in Trouble, and the fact that it's an imperative that seems to implicate the reader. Is there a story behind how you arrived at, at that as the title of the collection? I think at the point where maybe I had two-thirds of these stories and it became clear that I would have a collection at some point, um, you know, every night before falling asleep for about a week, uh, I would lie in bed with my husband and we would come up with really dumb titles for <laughs> collections. Uh, one of them was novel. One was, um, you know, just just random sort of silly ideas, which, which because we were on the point of falling asleep, was a lot of fun to do. Um, when I began thinking seriously about a title for the the collection, when we were getting ready to send it out to to people, editors to take a look, there wasn't a particular story title that felt like it would work uh, for a co coherent whole. Um, but it was really hard not to notice that all of the characters in the the stories were people who got into messes, um, and so started thinking about that that um you know the folk saying the devil finds work for idle hands and so thought about find work for idle hands which felt fancy and in fact there's a Donald Ray Pollock collection or hmm. novel rather that has a similar title and so sort of boiled that idea down to get in trouble and that seemed to fit the the characters well, in, in doing preparation for today and reading other interviews that discuss uh, the theories behind what might unify some of these stories to be all part of the same collection, I I haven't come across my experience as a reader of what I thought was one of the through lines for, for Get in Trouble. So I wanted to, to propose it and, and see what you thought about right. it. Uh, so, so as I was reading Get in Trouble... The thing that really jumped out at me that kept reoccurring is this idea of doubles and doubling and doppelgangers. So we have people with two shadows. We have a ghost story with two identical haunted houses. We have a surrogate mother. We have surrogate animatronic boyfriends. 
We have faces that act as avatars in a story, and we have Marine, the um, operating system of a ship, who also sort of acts as a double consciousness mm. for people as well. Do you feel like that's something that that is part of Get in Trouble, and is that a fascination of yours in when you're writing stories? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think very early on I wrote a story with, with twins in it, um, a, a ghost story, and after I wrote that story, I was always really a little sad because I really couldn't do too much else with 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 twins. I've done it occasionally, but you know, you use something that you like a lot as a as an item in a story, and then you you can't keep on doing it. Um, instead, you do it in sort of different ways. So there are a ton of doppelgangers in this book. What do you think that that doubling does for for narration for you? What what sort of uh, effect is it? Is it lending a story? You know, in a story, if you have a doppelganger, it creates a kind of useful uncertainty. Um, there's kind of a, a shiftiness. You know, traits may move back and forth, or people may take on um, each other's roles, um, and it makes the the ground maybe a little a little bit shiftier too under the reader's feet, which could be a bad thing. But if you're doing it intentionally, you can certainly use it to make make a story that much spookier. Um, and I do think in general, um, there's already always a kind of doubling that goes on in a story anyways, because the the reader, there's the kind of identification that goes on between the reader and the writer, maybe, the things that the writer wants you to experience that then you do experience. So you're kind of a shadow for the writer in that moment. Mm-hmm. And then there's the kind of associations or attachments that people have to the characters in a story and maybe the moments in which you separate a little bit and you think, I wouldn't do that or I don't like this person anymore or, um, you know, you sort of you pull back a little bit. And so that that kind of identification or, or doubling or maybe then separation at certain points is, you know, part of part of writing a story is is figuring out how to make a reader attach or or pull back or sort of progress through a series of emotions about a story or a set of characters. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that it's sort of inherent to writing itself because it also feels like the reader's wonderment about the writer's life outside of the story is a sense of doubling that haunts the story too, even when there's nothing necessarily overtly autobiographical in mm. one. Well, I mean, even when, and I think often there is, nothing directly autobiographical, but, you know, stories still come out of certain sets of preoccupations that a writer has. Right. It may be autobiographical in the sense that it is telling you something about the interior life of, of people when they, when they sit down to think about stories or narrative. Sure. And another thing that's interesting in Get in Trouble is that a lot of the stories are, um, have protagonists that are adolescent girls. And I, th- I feel like adolescence is an interesting doubling time in a sense because you're you're part of two worlds at the same time and you're you're not part of either at the same time. So it's, it almost feels like a sense of of doubling but also disembodiment. Yeah, I was I was I've been thinking about this a little bit. When I was a kid, my dad was a minister, he was a pastor. He then worked at a seminary and then he ended up in graduate school. He got a, a PhD in psychology. And, um, you know, he would bring home his homework. A lot of his homework was learning how to give specific sets of tests. So he gave us, you know, these, these tests as, as sort of a form of practice. And, um, you know, we, we did the Rorschach blots and things like that. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, I think that was probably useful training for, for being a writer because he, he would, you know, hand us the, the sheet and say, well, tell me what you see. And then we'd sort of say stuff, and then he'd say, okay, interesting, but wouldn't tell us anything. So it was, I think, this sort of confirmation uh-huh. that it was possible to see many sorts of things in an image or in a, in a story, and that you, the point wasn't being right or wrong. It was just what you could pull out of it. And now I've lost the, the question. I think it was adolescence anyway. So, um, you know, I think one of the things about it's I think that we are – multiple people in our adult lives as well you know we're different people at work or with our family or with certain groups of friends 
Um, but I think the thing about adolescence is you, you're at a point where you're learning to become those, those multiple selves. And much of it feels very false because you haven't fully figured out who to be in, in certain kinds of contexts. Um, and so there is that sort of weird, you know, you're trying too much or you're trying too little or you're trying out something that really doesn't pan out at all. And by the point that you're an adult, most of us have figured out, I think without thinking too much about it, who we are supposed to be in certain kinds of relationships. And maybe at a certain point in your life, you decide that you're not happy with, with who, you're, who you are. Um, or if you're lucky, you know, you like the person you are at work and you like the person that you get to be at home. Um, you know, that all of that is, in fact, very comfortable. So in a weird way, there's a, the paradox of like looking for the mask that is the most authentic. Absolutely. Or, or the persona that is most reflective of, of what you want to be in that scenario. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't mean any of this in a bad way. I don't think it's a bad thing that we are not always the same people depending on the, the context. I think it's actually pretty liberating, the yeah. idea that you do not always have to be the same person. It would be kind of awful to be confined into being the same person all of the time. Or I don't know, maybe in fact it would be, you know, very Buddhist, very, very to sort of be the same in every in every context. Well, we'll talk a little bit about the epigraph by Basho, the yeah. the haiku, uh, year after year, on the monkey's face, a monkey's face. Yeah, which that is... feels like a, such a great <laughs> intro to this enterprise of get in trouble to me. Well, that's a that's a poem that my husband read and loved, and I loved too. He went through a period where, whenever we were with a group of people, he would ask people to draw a monkey face. Um, in part as an homage to that poem. So somewhere we have a big stack of, of drawings oh. of monkey faces. Um, but, you know, as, as far as poems go, it's you look at it sometimes and you think that is a really depressing poem. And at other points you think, no, that's just, you know, that's that's fine. That's, that's the way it is. Um, and I guess the context for the poem is that um, I don't remember the holiday. It may have been sort of a, a New Year's holiday, but... Um, monks would go around with, with, with monkeys. And in fact, the monkeys would, would wear a mask on this, on this night, a monkey mask, uh, mm. which is, again, you know, just that image is kind of really striking. Yeah. Well, let's, let's have you read a little bit from, from the collection so people can hear the prose and, and get in trouble. So this is a small part of um, a ghost story called Two Houses, which is about a group of astronauts on a very, very long voyage, um, and they are having a birthday party and are now telling each other ghost stories. And this is one of them. At the time of this story, my great-grandmother was a girl of eight or nine. She went to school for part of the year. The rest of the year, she and her brothers and sisters did the work of the farm. My great-grandmother's work was to take the cows to a meadow where the pasturage was rich in clover and sweet grasses. The cows were very big and she was very small, but they knew to come when she called them. In the evening, she brought the herd home again. The path went along a ridge. On the near side, she and her cows passed a closer meadow that her family did not use, even though the pasturage looked very fine to my great-grandmother. There was a brook down in the meadow and an old tree. There was a rock under the tree, a great slab that looked something like a table. My great-grandmother didn't like that meadow. Sometimes when she looked down, she saw people sitting around the table that the rock made. They were eating and drinking. They wore old-fashioned clothing, the kind her own great-grandmother would have worn. She knew that they had been dead a very long time. One day, my great-grandmother was leading her cows home, and she looked down into the meadow. She saw the people eating and drinking at their table. And while she was looking down, they turned and looked at her. They began to wave at her to beckon that she should come down and sit with them and eat and drink. But instead, she turned away and went home and told her mother what had happened. And after that, her older brother, who was a very unimaginative boy, had the job of taking the cattle to the far pasture. We've been listening to Kelly Link read from her latest collection, Get in Trouble. You've, you've talked before about how stories can operate under daytime logic and, and nighttime logic. Can, can you talk about that in relationship to these stories? What is nighttime logic and and 
how are you implementing that in, in the stories that you write? These are, these are terms that uh, the writer, there's a writer, Howard Waldrop, uh, came up with. He's a mostly a short story writer. And uh, so the difference, according to Howard, is that daytime logic is, is kind of everyday logic. It's, you know, you, you sort of set your alarm and the alarm goes off at a specific time. Um, and, and your day sort of happens. And if things go wrong, if, if the coffee machine breaks or something like that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's no sort of feeling. You don't have a feeling of unease about it. And with nighttime logic, uh, I think in life or in a story, there's kind of a pattern that you feel uh, maybe intuitively. And there does appear to be a logic to it, but it is not the logic of alarms going off and coffee machines breaking and sort of it's it's a sort of a pattern in which there appear to be consequences to things and things appear to be taking very strange turns almost in a dream logic kind of way um and i am pretty sure he avoided using the term dream logic just because you know with 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 dreams i think you wake up and you think that made absolutely no sense. And in fact, all the, the power sort of goes away. And I think with, with nighttime logic, with, with stories, you may not understand the progression of the story, but you feel that there, there was, there, there's a sense, a guiding sensibility behind it. Hmm. You're, a, you're a writer who has a lot of crossover appeal between straight sci-fi fantasy readers who only read sci-fi and readers who never read sci-fi fantasy who <laughs> read you also. And I've been wondering about that phenomenon and wondering if it's it's partly related to this doubling phenomenon also. On the one hand, that you foreground um, the ways in which the everyday is really weird. And then when you portray things that are really fantastical, you portray them as very ordinary, mm. often within, within a story. And it feels like, in a way, you're drawing... You're, you're uh, uh, surprising people around their expectations in both senses. But um, I was curious how useful you feel like these genre distinctions are. You are definitely straddling worlds that you know only have somewhat of a Venn diagram overlap, but uh, is it, are they useful to you? Yes and no. I mean, science fiction, fantasy, horror versus sort of the fiction that you find in the fiction section of a bookstore. Um, you're going to find some surreal or fantastic stuff in fiction. Um, anyway, so there's already a kind of seepage. Um, well, what about in terms of uh, are you conscious of writing within a specific trope and then maybe um, trying to uh, change the expectations around it as you're writing in it? No, I, I think actually that this is my failure to write heart of genre stuff. You know, I did grow up reading fantasy and science fiction and the places where I wanted to sell my work to were the pulpy genre magazines, which I still love a great deal, Asimov's and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, but I have a very hard time writing a, I guess, what would be, to me they seem like very straightforward ghost stories, but they don't quite fit into that slot sometimes. Mm. You know, I, I have been published in those magazines, but um, that took some work, you know, because in fact... The stories did not feel like straightforward genre stories to the editors who were buying the stories. Um, I think that part of it is 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 just marketing. There's a, it seems to be a weird distinction between audiences for fiction and you know movie going audiences, for example, that people will go see superhero movies and they will see dramas or thrillers or romantic comedies or even young adult movies and don't really think twice about it. But when people read books, sometimes they really feel that they're supposed to stay on one side of the divide, which is a strange phenomenon to me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my goal, at least with, with um, the people that I know are my friends, is always to get them to read stuff that I think that they would like if they were reading a little bit farther afield. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a couple of people that I think of as my, my test group that I will give science fiction or fantasy books to and, and see, see what they think. And I often start with 
young adult fantasy, um, that that seems to be a great gateway to getting them to read more genre work. Well, it's interesting you you talking about wanting to write a certain way and then not the way your writing turned out was different than what your original intentions were. There's this interview you just did for the Millions website, and part of it, one of the pieces of advice you gave to writers is sort of gone viral on the internet while you've been on tour. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it said, uh, lean on what you do well. Being well-rounded as a writer isn't the goal. I, I would love for you to elaborate on that sentiment and maybe t- if you could just touch on um, some of the ways in which you realized these are my strengths and these are the things that I don't do as well and I'm just not going to do them. I can probably complicate that advice a little bit. Um, when I say lean on what you do well, what I also mean is you have to use that to compensate for the other stuff. It's not as if you can think, well, I'm I'm great at you know really descriptive, evocative passages, so I should concentrate on that and skip characterization altogether. You know, you have to find a way to make the stuff that you're good at work for characterization as well. And I thought for a long time, I'm not sure what I think now, that I was not particularly good at plot. Couldn't actually figure out what plot was. Um, so I sort of avoided you know, filling in what seemed to me to be the plotty bits of, of stories, um, sort of sped up around them or, you know, sort of pulled back, especially in endings, mm. and tried to find a way to make a story work without doing the stuff at the ending that just seemed to me that I just didn't really want to want to do. I was really weird about, uh, I, endings seemed very strange to me, the idea that you were supposed to tie everything off neatly. And so I had to find a way to leave a very open-ended ending in such a way that it was not incredibly frustrating to all readers. You know, I'm, I think there are probably still people who are enormously unhappy uh, with how my stories end, mm. but other people seem to be okay with it. Um, well, I think part of the reason why there's such an appeal to the quote that is traveling around is that it, there's a sense of of liberation that you don't have to be symmetrically good mm. at every aspect. I, and when we had George Saunders on, he was talking about how he was really good at voice. And when he finally realized that if he just leaned into voice, he could get everything else eventually. Like, he doesn't have much setting. He doesn't, I mean, he does right. have setting, but it's it's more he shows suggested. shows you what he wants to show you, yeah. You might not even more. know what anybody looks like in yeah. the entire story. Which I like a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, I mean, the other part of that is is not... Not just to do it well, but to push so far on the 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 you know the stories you're really in your own territory by that point, so sort of push it really far almost out of out of shape until you're doing something slightly different from everybody else um, and I will say the caveat to that is that the stuff that you are that begins to be easy for you to do as a writer. Eventually, you have to stop doing it, or else the stories all start to feel like the same story over and over again with small variations. And I think, again, the way around that is to keep on pushing in that direction until you've moved somewhere completely different, or else to take something that you really, really, really hate and try and figure out, you know, how to do that in a in a new way. Whether again, I'll I'll pick characterization or plot because those are things typically that make people very uncomfortable when they start writing out, when they start out writing. Um, so maybe if, if you really suck at characterization, uh, you know, figure out a different way to, to, to put characters together, to convey them on the page. Can you think of an instance in this collection of, of a story that came from pushing into an area that you really don't normally want to go? Yes. Uh, so there's, I, I'll give two examples. So in this collection, there's a story um, about two superheroes sitting on the side of a mountain. And I was feeling a little uneasy about dialogue, um, kind of liked writing it, but I was not sure. It felt my dialogue was beginning to feel a little stylized to me. And so when I started writing that story, I only wrote it as dialogue for maybe the first 10 pages. Um, And that was, again, dialogue is part of characterization. I was trying to find a way into 
creating, you know, two different people and making them seem really distinct from each other and only allowing myself to, to do that through dialogue. It was a lot of fun. I really like the people in that story, I think in part because uh, it was so much fun trying to figure out how to convey them just with words. And when I finally hit the point where I needed to add some other stuff, I went back to the beginning and I added as little as I could that wasn't dialogue. Mm. Um, and that was that was that ended up being a you know I'll probably do that again at some point. And then the other story is a story called The Lesson where um, I wanted to try some stuff with paragraphs. And in part, this is because I I am interested in paragraphs right now, but also because I was still thinking about a story that I read in workshop years ago by Jonathan Lethem called Press Enter, which I love, which is, as it turns out, all one paragraph, which I didn't realize when I was, when I was reading it. Um, but then in workshop, people began to either sort of praise it or question it. And so I went back and I thought, didn't even notice. So I read through it and it seemed to me that in fact he'd pulled it off, that it was in fact one enormous chunk of text which flowed very naturally. And so for the lesson I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to see what I can do with paragraphs. Um, but because of the sort of material of the story, um, even though at first I was thinking, well, I will, I will make these paragraphs and in fact they will flow, then in fact it began to feel more appropriate to the characters in the story to jam things together in enormous paragraphs, even though you would not normally expect those things to all be pressing up against each other. It reflected something about yes. the people. Yes, and the situation. That was my favorite story in the collection. Oh, the lesson, thank you. That and Secret Identity. But the lesson, it kind of blew me away, the paragraphs in the lesson, because of all the things that you don't normally find in them, but how well it actually worked as is. It felt like a daring feat that was pulled off oh, as if you. it was effortless. <laughs> but well, <laughs> well it, it I mean I I did I, I felt very dissatisfied for a while because in fact I was just jamming things together and then I realized that there was a reason why I wasn't breaking them apart that that but it is it's a very choppy feeling style and so that was the last story I wrote for the book. You know, it's still sort of a little bit new for me to go back and think about some of the some of the stylistic things that I was doing there and mm -hmm. whether or not I think they're entirely successful. Um, and so I go back and I think, well, that's that's really choppy. It's, you know, it sort of has a very uh, weird kind of syncopated beat to it. But and on I the can't other decide hand, if I like it or not. And then there, but you have characters who are cut off from other things yes. going on in other places also yeah. over and over in the story too, yeah. which is interesting. In case you just tuned in, uh, we're talking today to Kelly Link about her latest short story collection, Get in Trouble. I want to talk a little bit more about experimentation because I, I was in this literary genre divide and seeing people talk about you. One of the people that I often see associated with you in recent reviews is Alice Monroe from the literary world. And I was surprised on a first thought, because I think like in terms of tone and, and vibe, I, I, if I were to describe you to somebody who'd never read sci-fi, I would say somebody more like, imagine Laurie Moore if she wrote science fiction and fantasy, or, or put science and fi fiction and fantasy into her stories. But the more I thought about the Alice Monroe comparison, um, I thought there was a lot to it in terms of how experimental she is. Mm -hmm. And yet it doesn't leap out as, as difficult or, um, or call attention to itself in that way. And so I was thinking about Get in Trouble. You have the story Secret Identity, and you alternate between first, second, and third person in a story that's embedded in the letter. And then the lesson, you have dialogue, some of it in real time, some of it summarized um, with long paragraphs without quotation marks or descriptions of the people speaking. And then... Lots of other things like in, in Valley of the Girls, there's strange formatting. I would love to hear more about some of these choices you made. I don't, well, I've said this before, I don't actually like writing all that much. Uh, but the things that do make me enjoy it or the, th the things that are pleasurable about it are often problems of, of technique or sort of 
setting certain kinds of, of things that then have to be solved in such a way that the story reads naturally. So if I have a really interesting problem in a story, then the rest of it becomes much more enjoyable mm-hmm. to write. Do you start ever with a constraint? Like, I want to write a story where I use all all three points of view within a letter and see if I can pull it off? Is it a sort of self-challenge? With Secret Identity, it was more that I really like epistolary stories and I wanted to write one. And then because it's sort of a story, which is an apology, but it's also an explanation and then sort of a summary as well that moving back and forth between. And also because you're writing from the point of view of somebody who's really worked up and so they're right. going to be slipping back and forth anyway. One, of, I think one of the biggest problems with, with, with narrative with in prose is timing and pacing. It's not really so much of a problem, I think, in, in visual mediums or in music, or it is, but I don't understand those problems. I just see the end result, which is that it feels like there's no issue. Uh, but the problem is, is the problem of pacing. And so I'm often thinking this this isn't moving fast enough. How can I how can I get the story to flow in a faster way or sort of move the reader along at a speed that feels exhilarating? And doing things like switching between points of view or switching tenses is often a way either to slow down a story or to speed it up. And, and hopefully a way, a way that is not a challenge, but is more just sort of a, a way of increasing the stickiness of a story, making somebody invested in it. You also play with form in another way that um, a lot of these stories are, are quite long for the short story form. They're 25 to 40 page stories. Um, is Do you feel like there's something about what you're working on in these stories that they end up at that length? Well, I have been told by my friend Holly Black that it means that I'm probably headed towards novel territory. Hmm. You know, these stories are getting long, which uh, was I didn't really think about until I was writing maybe the last three or four. And even the lesson which I meant last story I wrote, I meant to write as a very, very short story and could not, in fact, keep it down to 5,000 words. I was sort of talking a lot to Holly Black as I was writing that story. Sort of told her some of the things that I wanted to do. And so everyone's, we often work together. So I would sort of look up and say, I think I'm now, I'd be at maybe 2,000 words. And I'd say, I think I'm at, I'm, I'm, this is going to be at least 6,000 words. And a little later, I'd say, I think I'm heading up again. I think it's more like <laughs> I can tell that I can see the ending receding from me. And to be fair, actually, that story I also wrote backwards for a while. I started with the ending and moved backwards as long as I could. So I did have an ending that I was moving towards, so I could see it very clearly moving oh, away from me. Well, you mentioned that you're not, you don't get a lot of pleasure out of the process of, of writing. And I've also read that you're, you, um, you thrive when there's distraction. Yes. Can, can you talk <laughs> about that? There was a couple things, both that you thrive with, with the distraction and that also when you feel stuck, you'll type out other people's stories. I, I would love to hear more about that. The part where I sit down and begin writing a story, unless I'm really lucky um, and and things go well in a way that they usually don't go, um, I just can't stand the sentences that I'm writing. I look at them and they feel, you know, it's, it's like um, gum without any flavor or something that you've been chewing for a long time. And that's fine as a sentence, but you know it, it's it's not doesn't feel like it is part of something that I want to write. Um, and I sadly I even feel this way often about email. Hmm. When I write email, I will write the first sentence of an email to somebody and think that's a terrible sentence or that's an okay sentence. It's terrible to write okay sentences. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, if I don't have some distraction, then what I'm doing is I'm really just looking at the sentence and thinking, why would any bother why would anybody bother to write a sentence like that? What is the point? And if I'm distracted enough, then I can keep going for long enough that then I can come right back around to that first sentence again and begin revising and then sort of revise my way through until 
you know, over and over again until I begin to, in fact, like the sentences a little bit. So in a way, the distraction is silencing the inner critic? Yes. And what... silencing sort of any sort of actual thinking. I, I don't even know if it's just the inner critic. I think any, I don't like to do any thinking about the story when I'm in the early stages of writing it. Mm-hmm. So what are the best distractions? Uh you know, I write in coffee shops a lot, and so other people's conversations, um, music. I often have headphones on um, or just stopping and talking to people a lot or drinking coffee or sometimes having a beer, hmm. you know, anything besides sort of just writing. What I really like is to, for there to be a conversation going on at my table, to have three or four different things to drink. Um, (laughs) that I can sort of move between coffee, water, soda, something. And then, um, you know, for people around us to be talking about their lives or about television and then also to be on Twitter at the same time. At the same time as you're writing. Yeah. Yeah. So I can sort of very quickly sort of move in and out of the story. So spend a little time and then move away at speed. Yeah. Come back to a little bit more, move away at speed. Yeah. And so, so... Talk a little bit about typing out other people's stories. You, we hear about other writers in the past doing that a lot, where you'd learn something by typing out a, a novel by Hemingway. What is, what is it about inhabiting the mechanical process of writing other people's sentences that helps get you out of feeling stuck between um, two writing sessions? Well, I think part of it was that it was kind of a warm-up exercise. One of the first stories I think that I typed out was maybe an Octavia Butler story. Um, So part of it was just for sort of to warm up towards writing my own stuff, which I didn't want to do. And the other thing was that it was a much slower way to read. I read pretty fast. And um, if I'm typing something out, then I'm having to read it much more slowly. Hmm. And then at a certain point, um, even if I'm not enthusiastic about the idea of writing, then as I'm typing, I begin to think about alternate choices. Not that the writer should have made them, but just I can see sort of alternate paths for sentences or for sort of certain kinds of narrative decisions. And that's interesting. And so enough of that. And then when I start working on my own stuff, um, you know, that part of the brain is, is awake where I'm, you know, I can start thinking, here are all the different things you could do. Um, which might be interesting. Here are the reasons why you wouldn't want to do some of them. Right. Well, in the in the course of the 10 years of, of writing the various stories for Get in Trouble, you also became a mom. Uh, was there anything about that experience or getting experiences that you didn't have pre-motherhood that when you look back now, changed some of the things that either you were interested in or the ways in which you you might have written stories because of a shift in, in concerns? Well, I mean, our daughter was born at 24 weeks, um, and we spent a year and a half in hospital with her uh, after she was born. And so, you know, I'm lucky because I work at home. My husband does too. We have an office, but we can also, the work's very portable. And so we did a lot of the work first in the NICU where she was and then in the two other hospitals where she ended up. Um, and we read a lot of books to her. Uh, and I don't necessarily love reading out loud, again, because I can read much faster if I'm just reading. Reading out loud slows it down. Um, but um, that was pleasurable, you know, seeing which book she seemed to like. And we had a lot of really weird data points because she was usually hooked up to, she was always hooked up to a monitor. So you could see with um, some of the books that we read to her the most often, you would see her heart rate go down and her oxygen saturation improve. Wow. And uh, it's still the case that, you know, if she has a bad dream and I go in the bedroom, I can, you know, say a couple of lines from the two books that she loved the best and her breathing, you know, quiets down and she goes back to sleep really easily. So it was sort of a, it was a reminder of um, how effective, I guess, patterns of words are even before you understand what they mean. Hmm. Um, Can and, I ask what, what one oh, of those sure. books were? Uh, the two books that we read the most often were 
H. Peach Pear Plum um, by Janet and Alan uh, Van Allsburg. No, sorry, it's Janet and Alan Allsburg, I think. Anyway, the book is H. Peach Pear Plum. It's a book that I give most often as a baby present. And it's a nursery rhyme with uh, pictures. Um, and the other book is um, by a writer named Chris Rashko, and it's called Charlie Parker Played Bebop. Mm. And there's a lot of nonsense uh, sounds in it. Mm. And it's very satisfying to read out loud. Another concern of Get In Trouble is the issue of, it seems to me, of class. And there's both, I think, some class anxiety in the book, but also certain stories that privilege people that have a lot um, in a world where you know that not everybody does. Uh, Do you think this is just part and parcel for apocalyptic or dystopian future fiction because we think of those disparities which are worsening in real time being worse out into the future? Or is that something that you really discovered that was on your mind as a, as a concern when you were writing them? It was not really on my mind when I was writing the stories. Um, but yes, I think it is sort of a, a thing that you see a lot of in young adult fiction and in fantasy and science fiction and in especially sort of post-apocalyptic um, you know, stuff like The Hunger Games. Right. Uh, and I didn't really think about it too hard until I put the collection together and then began to think about the number of characters in it who were either famous or seemed to be very good-looking according to the way that I had written them or else had a lot of money, um, which, you know, is useful in in terms of, of telling a story. You know, it... it sort of pushes it into more of a fable territory. Mm. But it also, um, that's kind of an easy shortcut in some ways and made me feel a little bit strange. You know? An easy shortcut? It's it's a shortcut to allowing you to do certain things that are fun for readers, I think, which mm. is describe some of the stuff that a lot of money or a lot of magic buys. Right. Yeah. But it also sort of casts the shadow of knowing the people that aren't being described who are also implied. Sure, absolutely. But, yeah. you know, the the stories are often about the fun bits, which are <laughs> much more about the people who have access to all the fun. You know, and they're miserable, right. too, because that's part of stories. But, right. you know, they're miserable while having a lot of exciting stuff. What about your work as an editor at Small Bear Press and, and with the zine? Is that How does that inflect the way you write if it does um, do you feel like there's some crossover or are they two separate hats really well they're they're kind of separate hats I think the um, the thing that's been the most useful is probably the the same thing that I get from teaching and from workshops which is learning how to especially when we work with with somebody with a novelist um, you know, reading through their novel and thinking very carefully about how the how the book could be, I'm not going to say improved, but where are the points where you feel them sort of pulling back maybe, or where are the points where maybe they know what stuff, what stuff means, but you need, you need it to be brought out a little bit more. Right. What are metaphors maybe that underlie the, the book? And, you know, are they all metaphors that the writer wants to be there or do you want to sort of tamp some of them down and so all of that and also and and then lastly sort of learning how to articulate those things in a way which is useful to the writer and serves the book that they actually want to write as opposed to the things that you as a reader think would be would be fun or would would sort of um, that you would do as a as a writer so you have to sort of take out your own impulses and think really hard about what the impulses are of the, the person whose, whose book it actually is. Well, as a person who's both an editor and a writer, do you seek out readers and editorial feedback for your writing? Or do you go a different route because you have a developed skill set there? Both. I mean, I, I have um, 
people, a lot of people who will read stuff for me early on, um, often as I'm writing it, Holly Black and Cassandra Clare, mm. and will give me feedback. Uh, Gavin does as well. Um, but one of the things about uh, getting a lot of feedback is that if you're lucky, then what you begin to develop is a willingness to hear it and then sort of a an ability to think, yes, that's useful, or no, I, I can't do that. And maybe to understand those reasons, but at least to have this this sort of sense of whether it's it's serves a story that you want to tell to pursue those things. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, tell us about any any writers that you're particularly jazzed about right now. Well, I just had lunch with one of my favorite writers, Molly Gloss. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. I love, love, love her work. And I was thinking of her when you were talking about Alice Monroe, because mm-hmm. I think they're very similar in the sense that, um, you know, the, the, the work that they do goes down really easy, but they're doing enormously complicated things to pull that off. And what's weird about that, too, I know before we were on air, we were talking a little bit about gender politics and literature is it feels like it goes down easy and people don't talk about it but I also feel like I wonder if it's like say Alice Monroe because she's a woman and she's writing about domestic Ontario and Canada that people aren't looking at the experimentation in the way they do when Philip Roth writes it or someone else writes it who's a man I mean I think we're now at a point point with Alice Monroe where Everybody knows how good she is, although I think you're right that they don't talk about some of the very complicated things that, that she does. Um, even Jonathan Franzen right. loves Alice Monroe. Right. So, But it is true that you don't think she's this, I mean, all the things she does with time and flashbacks and just the crazy way she defies all of the, the rules isn't what her reputation on the surface is about. No, it in fact seems to be sometimes just people who have decided that she's important without really wanting to talk about why. Um, And you know the thing is that I think maybe that's partly because she's she's a woman, but um, you know the fact that she has continued to write short stories and really focus on those that she gets an appropriate amount of credit for sticking to something that a lot of people don't pay attention to. That's a good point. Um, and I, I do think that there is also a tendency um, sometimes to dismiss work because it seems of a particular place. So Western writers, you know, people maybe on the East Coast think, well, that's that's not about me or that's this is a historical novel set in the West. Right. So like Molly Gloss might right. be writing a Western and there might be people who don't think they would be interested in it. Right. And they are so wrong. I just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I might, I, I really feel that my, my goal in life is to make people read the books that I, I like. Yeah. Well, could you name a couple others? Catherine Davis. I love her work. I'm rereading some of her novels. I've been um, meaning to read Duplex, but I haven't read it. Oh, it's so good. Really astonishing. Um, you know, and then I, I'm going to name, um, uh, a writer, a science fiction writer, Charlie Strauss, who's been writing a really fun, slightly pulpy, um, Lovecraftian-influenced um, espionage series about a, a group called the Laundry, um, oh. who are the British Secret Service, except they fight monsters. And they're so fun and so enjoyable. You know, they. I wish somebody would make a TV series out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a big watcher of of some series, right? Like I know you like the Vampire Diaries. I love the Vampire Diaries. Yeah. yeah. Uh, any other ones that you would point people to? Uh, well, um, we have been rewatching Buffy because um, we thought, well, we're really enjoying this vampire show. We should go back and watch Buffy as well, um, which I loved the first time around. How's it holding up? It is good. It's a little painful because you know what's coming. Uh, so, <laughs> right. <laughs> the the you know on the one hand you don't have the anxiety about what's going to happen. On the other hand, you think, well, I know it's going to happen. And it's terrible. Yeah. Not in the sense that it's poorly written, but just painful. I we've started watching Black Mirror, which is really great, um, and recently started watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is a cop show. With That's Andy Andy Samberg, Andy right? Samberg. 
And, you know, the thing is, I don't really want at this point in my life to be watching a cop show. <laughs> uh, it's very uncomfortable in certain regards. And yet the cast is incredible. Huh. It's a great cast. The characters are all amazing. Um, they're really, really funny. Uh, it is uh, much more pleasurable than than most sort of comedy TV I've seen in a long time. And then the last one I would recommend is a British show called The Book Group. Huh, I've never heard of it. There were two seasons of it, and it's about an American woman who moves to Glasgow and is lonely, so she decides to advertise for people to come and join the book group, and she does, and the people who are joined there, I think there are three footballers' wives, and there's a, a Glaswegian, Ned, just this, this guy, who turns out actually to be having an affair with one of the husbands of one of the footballers' wives. Oh, wow. And uh, two other people. And it is really painfully funny. It's one of my favorite TV shows. We watch it every couple of years. Huh. Before we end today, you mentioned that your short stories are lengthening and maybe that means you're moving towards the novel form. Is is that actually true? Are you are you aiming towards the novel form in the future? And if not, what are you what are you working on? <laughs> well, I have to write a novel. I I, I signed a contract. Tried a novel for Random House. Uh, <laughs> so the, pr- the pressure's on. Pressure is on. All right. Um, I realize part of the reason why I'm enjoying this tour so much is because I don't have to write a novel while I'm on it. Hmm. And then I'll get home and I'll have to start, you know, looking at the stuff that I have. And So you have started? I have a tiny, tiny piece. A tiny bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to push you on that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it was great having you on Between the Covers today, oh, Kelly. Thank you. My pleasure. We are talking today to writer Kelly Link about her latest short story collection, Get in Trouble. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.